0: morning also is from the Gospel of Luke, and it is a continuation of a focus we've had the last several weeks, early chapters of Luke's Gospel, in particular the third chapter as once again we pause, we are forced to pause and spend time with this strange man, John the Baptizer. Listen now to what the Spirit is saying to you and to the church today. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the ax is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, John said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise Let's pray together. May the meditations of our hearts together this morning be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. All four Gospels agree you can't get to Jesus without first dealing with John the Baptizer. But in spite of what many preachers, including this one, have said in the past, John the, Bapti- John the Baptizer isn't really like the Ed McMahon to the Johnny Carson of Jesus. And if you're if that's too old school for you, then John the, Bapt- John the Baptizer isn't like the Andy Richter to the Conan O'Brien. John isn't as tame or as predictable as those guys. John the Baptizer is more like Michael Buffer. Who knows who Michael Buffer is? Can someone give me his famous line? (laughs) That's right. He's the boxing announcer who has trademarked the line, Let's get ready to rumble! That's who John the Baptizer is. Here's a great image for John that I found. An old fellow had been camping in the north woods for weeks all by himself. Every night at dusk, this old guy would build himself a great campfire. He would boil water for coffee. He would take out his skillet and fry up some bacon for dinner. This old guy loved his peaceful routine, and as he was sitting by the fire one night, the water boiling and the bacon sizzling he heard a tremendous racket coming from the brush somewhere out in the darkness, beyond the reach of the firelight. He could hear the trees being knocked over and the branches snapping, and all of a sudden, the biggest bear he'd ever seen came bursting into the clearing. On the bear's back was riding a tough-looking ombre, holding a seven-foot live rattlesnake in his hands. The man was shouting and screaming as he brought the bear to a skidding halt right in front of the fire. Then he bit the head off the rattlesnake and flung it into the brush. Then the man slid off the bear's back, turned and hit the bear right between the eyes, knocking the bear unconscious. The camper was stunned and speechless as this wild-eyed renegade walked over to the fire, tossed the boiling coffee down his throat, drank the hot grease straight out of the skillet, slapped the bear back onto consciousness, wiped his hands with poison ivy, then turned to the camper and said, partner, I'm sorry I can't stick around and visit any longer, but I've got to keep moving because a real bad dude is chasing me. John is just the prelude. Kind of shifts our understanding and expectation of Christmas, if we'll let it. John the baptizer says, someone more powerful than I is on his way. Jesus isn't here yet, but first we've got to deal with John and listen to what he has to say. And he arrives announcing, you think I'm strange, you think I'm different. The one coming after me is going to make way more of a difference than I could ever do. I'm not worthy to untie his shoelaces I may baptize with water, but he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, if you were reading closer this morning, you may have noticed that Luke, in his description of John the Baptist, John the baptizer, leaves out what most of us are most familiar with about John. Luke leaves out his outfit, his clothing, and his diet. Remember Mark and Matthew go into very detailed specifics about how John looked and what he ate, how John wore clothes woven from the hair of a camel, and how he ate wild honey and locusts, how he was a voice calling in the wilderness. From their description, their visual description of how John looked, we can see his rough and tangled hair, his rough clothing. We can smell him even. We can hear his loud, raspy voice, which probably was from all the locusts and wild honey. In fact, as a kid, I thought that he would need the honey to get the locusts down, actually. But Luke doesn't mention any of that. Did you catch that? Luke doesn't use visual imagery. Luke uses John's own words to paint a picture just as terrifying, though. Here today in Luke, John the baptizer calls his listeners, Right at the start, you brood of vipers, which is always a good opening line for a public speaker. (laughs) When you're trying to win a crowd over, insult them right from the start. You brood of vipers. You can almost see him snarling and spitting those words out. And then, if you want your audience to really love you, threaten them. There's a sharp ax lying at the foot of your trees And if you don't bear good fruit, your tree is going to be thrown into the fire. Wow, Merry Christmas to you too. With good news like that, who needs bad news? Well, we do. Because you can't get to Jesus, and Jesus can't get to you, without first dealing with John the baptizer and what he has to say. And his message, if not his description, is consistent throughout all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all have different things to report about this strange, loud, smelly guy preaching out there in the middle of nowhere. But Luke and Mark and John and Matthew all agree that the hard news has to come to us before we can ever receive the good news. Remember the famous line, From Ferris Bueller, life happens pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you might miss it. Well, John the Baptizer is saying, something new is coming. Change is coming. But if you don't make the changes you need to make, you might miss it. It's a hard message, but it is true. And we need to hear hard messages sometimes as much as we try to avoid them. We need to face the truth about ourselves as hard as that might be. We need to be forced to let go of old habits and old illusions of being in control that we know don't work at all, that cause us to tell untruths, to be untruthful to ourselves, that we hold on to these patterns and ways of being because, well, they're what we know and we're afraid of what change might look like. We know things aren't working like they should We know that deep down we're not at peace in the way that we really want to be. We know that we are not living a truthful way of living. We are afraid. You know, the psychiatrist and author Gerald May, one of my true heroes, once wrote, We cling to things, people, beliefs, and behaviors, not because we love them, but because we are terrified of losing them. We cling to things, people, beliefs, and behaviors not because we love them, but because we're terrified of losing them. May wrote those, book, those words in a book called, the long title, The Dark Night of the Soul. A psychiatrist explores the connection between darkness and spiritual growth. The connection between the dark night of the soul, profound personal suffering and confrontation with the truth, and spiritual growth. Every year in the first half of December, John the Baptizer bursts onto the stage, and then John the Baptizer won't leave as quickly as we'd like him to. He makes us uncomfortable. He's kind of interesting, but... He quickly outlives his welcome. John the baptizer is like that couple at every wedding reception, and I go to a lot of wedding receptions, that one couple who can really dance. You know, they're twirling and jumping and spinning, and they've been practicing, obviously, and at first, it's amazing to watch. Everybody kind of backs off and stops and watches them go. Their talent, their skill, their steps, their joy, in just dancing together is so amazing. We're all watching. But then they keep dancing. And the more they dance, the more we all get the message that the rest of us can't dance like that. And after a while, everybody's like, all right, that's about enough. You two need to get off that dance floor. We can get back to what we're used to doing, our not-so-rhythmic, not-so-great dance moves. You know, the 70s dance? You know, that's what I do. John wears out his welcome pretty quickly because he makes us uncomfortable. He makes us face the truth of who we are. You know, my mother, who's been gone a dozen years now, uh, as some of you have heard me say, is was one of the most goody-two-shoes people I've ever known. For my mother, burp was a curse word. <laughs> she didn't smoke, she didn't curse, and she said her prayers every night, I, pr- I guarantee you that. And she only had one glass of wine at dinner, usually. Rarely, two glasses, on very special occasions. But you know, my mom was one of those soft spoken, super nice people who so rarely drank that when she did have that second glass of wine, my mother would tell you things about yourself that you didn't know. (laughs) And things you didn't necessarily want to hear, especially from her. Gregory, your hair is too long. It's in your eyes. Uh, okay, thanks. Gregory, you know, I don't think I really like that girl you're taking to the prom. Uh, You mean my girlfriend? Wait, what? (laughs) My mother would tell me things that I didn't necessarily know or more to the point that I really didn't want to face. And she was usually right. John the Baptizer is our truth teller. He doesn't just tell us that something better is coming. He tells us why we need something better if we'll only listen to him. He's kind of like the bad cop who comes in first before the good cop. John the Baptizer is kind of like an intervention. You know, when your parents and your siblings and your two best friends from high school all gather in one room and you're surprised to see them, and then they sit you down and they tell you, you've got a problem. That what you're doing is wrong. It's hurting them and it's hurting you. And you are so scared. You can't believe or you, can't think you, you, don't, you think you'll never be as terrified as that again because you're afraid they will not love you anymore. And then they tell you after they've gone through one after the other and told you all the things you've done to hurt them, then they go back around again and they, each one of them tells you how much they love you anyway. And that's what John the Baptist is doing. He is the prelude to the symphony of Grace. He's confronting us with tough love so that we can really absorb the love that is coming. He is a shocking, scary, unsettling figure, but what he has to say to us in the end brings us to peace, hope, joy, and love. I baptize you with water, but the one who's coming after me is way more powerful than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, the very presence of the living God think I'm a lot to handle. I'm not the end of the story. I am just the start. Out there in the desert, John the Baptist is a sheep in wolf's clothing. He's the embodiment of true, searing, tough, honest love. He's the medicine that tastes awful, but that I have to take before I have any chance of feeling better, getting better, living healthily. He looks scary, and what he has to say is even more scary because he holds a mirror up in front of us, in front of me, and he says, you can do better and you can be better, but you don't have to fix yourself. You don't have to do it all by yourself. You don't have to do it alone. One who is more powerful than I is coming, and that one loves you with the infinite love of the universe God's very self is about to make an entrance and his power in this humble child born on the edge of the world in a manger his power is grace nothing more and nothing less than the grace of God you know Don Henley has a great line in one of his songs, We all need a little tenderness, but how can love survive in such a graceless age? We need grace. You know, St. Augustine once wrote that God is always trying to give us good things, but our hands are too full to receive them. We have to let go, and letting go hurts. We have to change, and change, by definition, hurts. It adds stress to the equilibrium. Grace is the free, unearned love of God. It's the best of things. It's your birthright and mine, and it is coming, John is saying to us. If we will listen to him, and more importantly, if we'll do the hard work of the letting go, of the changing, so our hands and our hearts will be open to receive that grace. In another book by Gerald May, which he titled Addiction and Grace, May said, the desert is where we discover the depths of our weakness, the power of grace, and the price of both. Moreover, what takes place in the desert is not simply difficult travel and adventurous learning. It is repentance and conversion, the transformation of mixed motivations into purified desire, the greening of the desert, into garden through the living water of God's grace. The word of God comes to us and says, something wonderful is coming. Get ready. Amen.